0: This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US, and Hong Kong-listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up.
1: This podcast is sponsored by RASK Invest, Owen's complete guide
0: to money and investing. Visit the RASK Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Ras Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the Rask Group's Financial Services Guide on the Rask Finance website. Chris Bates is the founder of Wealthful, a financial planning and property advice business based in Sydney. Chris specializes in helping families get control of their finances and invest in property the right way. Chris regularly shares his candid views on financial advice, property, and personal finance via LinkedIn, a podcast, and other social channels. Chris and I talk about his unusual and surprisingly short introduction to financial advice, creating social capital, how to identify investment grade property, and the future of financial advice. Chris, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Good to talk. Yeah, wonderful. I hear that you're a Liverpool fan. (laughs)
1: <laughs> massive liverpool fan i can i can tell people that now um i mean 27 years supporting them i think we've really won two or three things but um very happy at the mm. moment.
0: what was it just a few days ago um liverpool won the champions league yes yeah tottenham were robbed
1: yeah oh no, no i think well, i <laughs> it's funny i try to stay unbiased watching football i don't want to be one of those fans that are just you know it's a penalty when you when you win the when it should be for you and mm. when it's not you you say it's not a penalty i don't want to be one of those fans but i kind of feel like it wasn't a penalty so i'm a little <laughs> bit conflicted with the result but no, anyway i'm so happy
0: yeah uh, congratulations mate! You. that so, to support for that long i mean i'm a chelsea fan so okay it hasn't been quite as long between drinks for me yeah um but yeah no well done it was a good game nonetheless yeah.
1: You should be the new manager.
0: Well, well, why not? They go through them quick <laughs> enough and they get paid enough. I'll put my hand up. Um, all right, mate. You probably know the basic outline of the show. It's We focus on your journey, the business you've built, and then we get into some, get into some more topical things or areas of interest for you and for our listeners to take away and probably put into action. Mm-hmm. So why don't we kick things off with just tell us who you are, tell us where you grew up. Uh, one of the things that I like to, to know and... Podcasts are all about storytelling, so Mm -hmm. if you have any stories from when you were younger and I I guess where that catalyst for finance came from.
1: Okay, I mean, probably on the tin, um, 32, live in Sydney, um, just got married.
0: Congratulations.
1: Uh, I know, very exciting. Um, I mean, I grew up in Newcastle mainly, so I was 18, and then going to kind of school there, um, was kind of good at numbers, didn't really Mm -hmm. connect with school too much. Um, just thought I should be become an accountant, was quite good at accounting, joined an accounting practice, did that for a year, realized I could see what the guys like five, six years ahead of me were doing. It was basically the same thing, but just mm. bigger clients potentially. So didn't excite me. Um, then moved to Sydney, wanted to see the world a bit. Um, and then I thought, well, oh, I started investing at that point. I was actually buying some funds. I was doing some shares. I've right. done a few things and thought, well, maybe funds management is kind of the next route. So joined Platinum. In their kind of funds administrations, right at the bottom, you know, getting the mail, yeah. um, getting the beers for Friday, and uh, it was great because I get, I guess, I could real insight into the the investment world, and still got some friends kind of there as well. Yeah. Um, but I could see the life that the guys ten years older were living. You know, stupid fourteen hour days, ridiculously stressed, um, and so moved to went to the UK on holidays, met a financial advisor. Um, and then I kind of joined the dots and said, well, I actually love helping people. I've always been inquisitive of people and their story and getting to know someone. And, um, you yeah, I've just always been curious with that. And I could kind of help people, could be good with money. And then so I thought, well, I'll become a financial advisor.
0: How did you, how did you go from being in Australia to going to the UK and being an advisor? Did you have to do any courses or anything like that?
1: Yeah, so I went to the UK on a holiday. It was actually my grandparents, my grandmother's 65th birthday we went for. Um, and she just, you to one of her friends who was a financial advisor. Right. And then I thought, well, actually that's the result. That's what, that's what I'm looking for. Went back to Australia and then say some cash up and then moved to the UK. Mm. Um, it's pretty scary what I had to do to become an advisor. It was literally, uh, five weeks. They took us to a, you know, a pretty awful part of the UK. It was mm. called Milton Keys. And, um, we just sat in a room and we just got learned how to, we got told how to sell. Right. Um. And it was pretty, we didn't know it was people not in financial advice and lots of different industries. And um, yeah, we just got sold how to, basically taught how to sell products. And then, you know, literally two months later, I was out in branches selling products mm. and it's just not on, it wasn't right. Um, but that's kind of the training that I got. Mm. And the barriers to entry were just so low. Literally did an education course and I was advising a few months later.
0: Right. and. Has it? Do you keep up with it? Has it changed since then? Yeah, because I feel like more in recent times, they've been pretty. The regulator over there has been pretty ferocious in terms of clamping down on standards and introducing regulation, especially in the fallout of the GFC.
1: Yeah, so the UK took a. Uh, the GFC happened exactly, and then in 2011, I was you know you know I came back to Australia, but in 2010 they said, look, enough's enough. We've got to fix up the financial advice industry we've got too many problems mm. um a lot of it in the banking system but also in the independent side and they just lifted the education standards like they are here um not to a degree level but to a pretty solid diploma level which is much higher than probably the diploma level here and that cut the advisor i'm pretty sure over 50 percent of advisors left wow um and it was it was a, a year of solid work so that, that really worked and they, the uk didn't stuff around with it unlike brexit where the you know, taking five years to get it done. They just, she said this 31st of December, you're either in or you're out and um, that, which basically halved the financial advisor out there, which was an amazing move.
0: So they've, let's just wind back the clock a bit. So around the time of the GFC, it's probably a formative time for many young advisors over there. What were you seeing in terms of clients? Was it, was it an easy time in your career or was it, you know, were you, were you seeing the worst of the worst?
1: Um, I didn't know any better. So I, Literally my first, it was the last week of our training course. I remember it very clearly um, because there was this long chat because Northern Rock, there was a run on Northern mm-hmm. Rock and we were just about to go out advising late 2007 and one of the guys in the uh, course was like, I'm going to buy Northern Rock shares. <laughs> he's already thinking he's a financial advisor and he's you know, telling people what he's doing um, and um, Northern Rock went, went under, yeah. you know, and um, that was the start of the GFC and... Um, yeah, I guess I just didn't really know any better. I was just out there and I was a young, kind of positive, kind of energized person. And I just didn't really know. And that's the problem with, with advising without very little experience and knowledge and helping people. Um, you just don't know what you don't know. Mm. And that was, yeah, not, not great to be honest. The problem is I only had three products in my tool bag. What were they? It was two structured products and a risk-based product. Um, the structured products had like a guaranteed sort of three and a half or five and a half year time frame where you couldn't lose money. You could just get your capital back in five and a half years, which is technically losing money because of inflation. But mm. um, the returns would give you 50% of whatever the FTSE went up over that period. All right. Um, but, you know, and because we're in a de-risk or a f- collapsing market, you know, they were quite easy to, for people to think, oh, I'm only getting 2% on cash, rates have gone to zero. Um, I might as well put it into something like this for the next five years, at least it's guaranteed. Mm. Um, but they're the awful products.
0: Did they work out? Um, so this
1: two thousand and seven, two thousand and twelve. Like the FTSE did go up for some, but you know they may have made twenty percent over five years instead mm. of making you know fifteen percent or something like, that, or maybe even making six percent or something. So they they didn't lose money. Mm. I was probably you know you the story in detail um, when two thousand and nine happened and the market had properly crashed in March two thousand and nine. That was mm. the the bottom. So we're over ten years now into the bull run, which is just crazy. Um, I was actually probably the, one of the advisors out of the whole country that was selling the most of, and it was selling, and that's unfortunately the case. A risk based product, which was, um, you know, it goes up with the market and down with the market, like a traditional fund. Yep. Um, and I was the one in the country selling the most at the when the market was at the bottom, because it sh- and that showed to me the whole country was kind of mis-selling this safe product guarantee product when they should have been advising clients to take a bit of risk at that point in time because this is when the market had crashed mm. so it and was, did that work
0: out all right that product
1: yeah that, that would have been great it had high high percentage fees like as a assets under management fee yep but i didn't know any better at that point because i was you know 18 months into financial advice world mm. um and um you know those products wouldn't be competitive today because you're talking, talking about two percent mer's where you know, you're lucky to get over one percent now for yeah. funds, especially when you've got index funds that you know where there can as an option now.
0: Yeah. So let's also just talk about your personal life here. Did you go over to London because not just for the from a professional point of view, you wanted that career change, I guess, but was it a chance for you to just experience the world?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was only twenty. Um, and I might even just be nineteen. My first actually, no, I was March, yeah, so I was twenty. Um, yeah, and I mean, I just wanted to see the world, mm. travel um grow up you know I made lots of you know my best closest friends and that's what the benefit of traveling is you know a lot of friends I met were a lot older than me um and so you, you learn a lot and you see the world and after four years though it is a pretty tough life over there you know just weather-wise and um you know being away from family and things like that I just got to be too much and thought like let's come back to home to Australia
0: yep. and you moved back to Melbourne first
1: yeah moved to Melbourne. Um, I think what happens when you go away you don't want to go back to where you're from yeah. and so I moved to Melbourne lived down here for two years but then I was going up to Sydney a lot and kind of fell in love with Sydney again mm. I was going up and seeing my sister there and um, yeah moved back to Sydney in 2013
0: yeah, right. and you obviously continued on as a planner and was 2013 when you were a nominee for the planner of the year
1: yeah I mean you can get nominated for these awards but um Yeah, that was an AFR, AFA sort of award Mm -hmm. um, that I got nominated for, which was cool.
0: Yeah, great. Um, Yeah. And then 2014 is when you decided to launch your own business, right? Yeah. Wealthful. Why did you want to launch your own business in the first place?
1: Um, I mean, technically, I was always going to do it. Like, I, you know, I think I'd always wanted to do it my way. I've always kind of had that philosophy um you know i think a lot of gem wise and millennials do have it Mm -hmm. that way um and uh yeah i guess i I had lots of frustration with the industry and where it was going i thought if i i have no excuses when you do it your way you know you're accountable uh, and you can't really blame anything else or anything like that so Mm -hmm. i always wanted to do do it my way and that's by doing that was starting my own business yeah i didn't like you know a lot of learnings in life i didn't know what i didn't know And I was probably a bit overconfident, Mm. um, thought things would happen overnight. um, But there's so many things that come into building a a solid business that um, you only know once you get Mm. out and about.
0: And you probably need that naivety, I guess. I had the same experience. I thought, you know, day one, we're going to do this. And two years later, I'm still trying to get to that day one that I had in my mind. I think it's just a natural, you know, you, you have to be a little bit screws loose and just go for it because... Um, unfortunately, few businesses just race out of the gates, right? Mm. So why don't you tell us more about Wellfall, anyway? Um, So
1: basically, you know, my passion's around helping kind of younger families, you know, 30s, 40s, um, Mm. you know, the dynamic of helping a couple really plan their life out, make big decisions. It's usually their first financial advice experience as well. Um, It's just a really positive experience taking someone's, views and ideas and there's so much growth and so much runway mm. um, and any, any, anything's possible. Whereas I feel like with a lot of older clients, you know, there's, a, there's an end date. We're trying to get to here in five, six, ten years time. Um, and it's all about dialing down. And the conversation I think, yeah, you know, to me mm. it was a bit boring. But with younger mm. clients, it's just just getting to know them. A lot of it does come with mapping. Their biggest problem is property without doubt. It's getting a home, it's renovating that home or, or doing a you know, construction to build mm. that out, getting something they're happy with and they can grow into as a family. It's really challenging in, in Sydney mm. and not as much in Melbourne, but also in Melbourne. Um, but once they've got that sorted, it's then making sure they're on top of their debt. Um, and we so we make sure that we've got a plan in place and we're not over leveraging them. Um, and then we're just really challenging them on everything that comes around their life, you know, whether it's work or, you know, asking them big questions around kids and purpose and, mm. and just really trying to get them to align. Their life and their money to in the right direction, really. Mm. It's so a bit more
0: forgiving for you too, as an advisor, I imagine, because you do have that growth w- runway. Typically, we're targeting retirement and a, a you know a certain sum when we get there. But you can make small changes now that can compound over a lifetime, right? That's the big picture.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And that's why I love to help first-time buyers. Um, the f- When they you know if they do come to me at that stage, um, you know, there's yeah spending in multiple meetings with them and helping them and. Really making sure they get it right, and I'm a little bit OTT on it. Um, that because I know that that's the most important one. If they do make that decision right, when they come back in five or seven years' time, they'll end up they'll be in a much better position than if they didn't. Mm. And then that means that they can make the next decision, and it, it all does compound. Mm. But if they do stuff up that first one, they go by you know, a poor investor in property or they buy, you know, an off-the-plan apartment or they buy just something that's not great, they basically miss a huge opportunity and um, yeah.
0: Mm. We'll get to some of the, maybe the strategies or some of the pitfalls that people find themselves in. Uh, I, I read on your LinkedIn uh, a post that you wrote a little while ago and you, and you said, not quite, it's, it's something to the effect of um, not, not only do you coach people to make smart financial decisions, you coach them to make Good life decisions, mm. and for me, those two are kind of inextricably linked, if you like. Because you tend to see with people that if they have good life habits, they tend to have good money habits. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm keen to know how you go about rewiring them, and what what are some of the strategies you put in place? Particularly, if I'm, I'm imagining a couple. And, you know, there might be some dynamics around money or some perceptions around that. How do you deal with those types of situations? And what are the I suppose. Pardon me. Some of the common strategies you use.
1: Um, so we always, so the first conversation we always have is on a phone call mm-hmm. and um, you know, the, I'll just kind of tell them a bit more about what we do. And then we go straight into asking questions about who they are. Tell me more about themselves. And what I'm really wanting to know is what's motivating them, where they're from. So like, well you asked me you're from, you know, did you grow up in Sydney? Yeah. We grew up there. Where's your partner from? Or they're from mm. the UK and, or how long you guys been together, or four years, you know. I want to know about their life and also what they're thinking about doing, where they're thinking about going, you know. Or do you guys think you're going to stay in Sydney? What do you do for work? You know, do you think you ever see yourself living overseas? Um, we're trying to figure out where they want to go with their life. And, so, and if they don't know that, then we're, most, we're best trying to figure that out mm-hmm. and really make some decisions on that because most people don't want to think about where their life potentially could be. Mm-hmm. Once we figure that out, And sometimes it's very hazy, you know, like especially if one partner's from Australia, one partner's overseas, they may want to live overseas or they may want to swap jobs or start a business. Let's just talk about all these sort of things and get them all out in the open. And then we can start to build what to do around that because if there is a need to say live in – or a desire to live in Sydney long term and it's a desire to have a family, you know, what are you going to do to solve that problem because that problem probably won't go away. Mm -hmm. And if you want to stay – In a house and live in an area we need to come up with a strategy to solve that problem first because if whatever we do today may compromise that and you need to be aware of that or maybe you should just try to plan towards that now so that is one strategy that lots of clients will do is even if they're not ready to get into that future family home today we will look to make that as their investment rather than buying
0: other stuff yeah okay so it's mainly about getting that knowing where you want to be settled in particular which is a big thing right yeah um you've also mentioned this idea of of true wealth mm-hmm. before and i think there's a maybe even a video on your site which yep. is really good and you also mentioned it, this phrase fulfilled life can mm-hmm. you explain what they mean because we also we always talk about and we always hear people talk about financial independence and financial freedom but it's kind of this it's very subjective and you're it's really hard to define so what in your mind is that
1: yeah so i think it means different things to different people i think it's never there's so much research out there that money's not going to make you happy it's only the money that enables something and so usually it's giving you time or you know your relationships or health and things like that so for me true wealth's all those elements you know like um there's no point having lots of money if you've got no time and you've got Know, relationships that you really care about or your health's really deteriorating or you don't really connect with where you live and the community. I think that a lot of people don't feel like they're not wealthy until they've got that but really they should be putting value on what they currently have today because they are already wealthy. So that's my view on it is money's not the end game. You should really be valuing what you have today and focusing on these things and only using money to enable and enhance the experiences. So... You know, it's important to have money. Maybe you know, traveling is a huge part of you know building relationships and experiences, and mm. but also money. Like, there's no point going and pursuing money for the sake of money if it's not giving you any purpose or any satisfaction, or mm. you know, you're just going to burn out. So, me, true wealth is really valuing mm. things that are not just money, mm. and putting it, putting a tangible, and in using money to grow those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think mm. the older I've gotten, I'm still quite young, so I'm yet to see what will happen in the next 10 years, but mm. the older I've gotten, the more I began, began to value relationships and just mm. the, the freedom that comes with, I suppose, you know, having a, enough money to be comfortable. And I think that's my definition of freedom is having control my, of my time and being able to develop those relationships. Mm. I'd like to, because a lot of what you do and a lot of the what you've alluded to so far is gearing towards property and i don't mean gearing no pun intended but uh i'm interested to know what you think are some of the common mistakes that let's go with the 30 to 40 year old typical average australian client that you would see. what are some of the behavioral mistakes or financial mistakes that they fall into you mentioned buying off the plan as one of them i think that's as far as i'm concerned that's kind of a no-no in my book oh yeah i'm I'm keen to know if you have if, if you have any others in your mind
1: Oh yeah, so off the plan, definitely not. And we've only seen that the last week with a couple of building quality risks come out with a few towers. But yeah, I mean that's a, that's a big one. I mean, I think a lot of the you go into. I was just in the bookshop today at the airport, and um, you know, there's all these books on how to build money so fast and grow money. And it's always about quantity and big numbers and mm. number of properties. That's another huge mistake um you know people are going by four or five investment properties and they're all cheap cheerful assets um you know i think over leveraging like into their homes a big thing it's very um a lot of people i've seen a lot of clients that have gone into too much debt on their home and they've hamstrung themselves Mm -hmm. so they want to live a good life so they want to spend a lot of money each month um so so it's a good life but they want to they do have a life that spends a lot of money and they can't afford to pay off the mortgage basically so Mm. the mortgage just kind of goes flat lines um it's just extremely stressful
0: are there any rules of thumb that you would use in that situation like i've heard some planners will say keep your mortgage repayments less than 30 percent
1: yeah of your income i look at it um differently i probably i built my own little calculator that basically I, i don't whatever the minimum repayment is I tell them forget that that's what the bank wants you to pay you don't want to pay that you want to pay more than that and then we do a bit of a calculation to basically say well how much how much would you have to pay to pay this off over 15 years Mm. but allowing for kind of salary increases allowing for interest rates to potentially go up and down and a few other things so that just gives them a and it's usually a good 40 50 percent above what the minimum bank repayment is right and so they go wow, I actually thought it was only six grand a month I should be paying eight and a half um, mm. and I have to up that next year to nine, to, mm. you know, and it has to go up. So mm. I guess that's how I try to retrain them is on a much higher figure than what they will actually have to pay and then try to commit to that every month.
0: Mm. Uh, what, how about, because, you know, I'm, my, my role is primarily involved in share markets and managed funds and, and funds management. Yeah. When, when I look over the fence and I, 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 I read property investing books, or I go to seminars of those types of things, you know, I, I can't help but think that it's kind of like it gets a bit murky in certain respects. Do you ever have clients come in that have had pretty bad outcomes when it comes to relying on information or relying on people who you, who they thought were trustworthy? And what I mean is, you know, getting set up in structures or buying off the plan or those types of things. Yeah. Are there any pitfalls that people fall, and fall into? I'm thinking it's it's very easy to have that confirmation bias so you get this idea in your head and then you go ahead and you want to, do whatever strategy gets you rich as quick as possible, and they're promising you things. Do you there, do you come across that very often? All the time. So, because
1: yep. as you say, I'm, I'm property. Not, excuse me, not focused, but you know there is a big property element to what we do. Now, a lot of that comes around the lifestyle, getting their home, mm. and then helping them renovate it, things like that. But then also, because there's only so much equity they've got in that home, and because they're on good incomes that equity they can use to leverage using their borrowing capacity Mm -hmm. and then go and buy an investment so instead of buying 100 grand worth of shares or 200 grand worth of shares maybe then going getting a margin loan Mm. which may or may not be a good decision depending on where markets are and the cost and you know there's a margin calls etc maybe it's better to use that you know 200 grand of equity and then borrow another 800 and buy one really top quality investment property Mm. you know that's how and then hold that for you know and i i my advice is never to sell it you know because if you've got a good asset why would you ever sell it so you just keep it Mm. you know in 10 years time is it a good asset yes okay is it better than it was yes okay so then why would you sell it and wait another 10 years it's still a good asset still you know what i mean so that's kind of the philosophy but a lot of the philosophies i see that are big mistakes is people have gone and um they'll go to some investment property guru it could be off the plan it could be you know cheap rural kind of Properties like forty k's from Brisbane CBD, mm-hmm. and they'll go and buy four of them. Um, or it's you know there's typical ones out there that are buying properties fifty to one hundred thousand dollars, which is pretty scary. And you've got seventy properties, and wow. you know there's those type of people, which I don't think is a good idea. Um, there's people who spruik, you know, new kind of duplexes in regional like, double income um, granny flat properties. Yeah. It, it, there really is lots of ways to do it. The reality mm. is. Good property investing is getting scarce assets, and there's actually only usually a handful of them on the market at the, at each time. I've got a client trying to buy in Melbourne at the moment. She's been looking for four months for a you hmm. know for a quality asset, and we can't find one. Hmm.
0: And that's with choppy markets.
1: And that's well, yeah. And there's and it should be easier, exactly. Yeah. But there's no no good stock on the market right now. And she's got a buyer's agent hmm. who gets paid if she buys something, but we just can't find something. And she missed out at two properties. So getting good assets is really hard. It shouldn't be easy. Um, and to get it for a good price <clears throat> because the reason she hasn't got something, is she's missed out on two properties that have <clears throat> overshot at auction.
0: Right. Okay. That's surprising. So,
1: you know, and that's why then that's how that's really the, the, how much that's, that's where good in property investing gets to is actually getting those really scarce price properties at, at good prices.
0: I, I was going to ask you this question a little later on, but we often hear, and I was, I listen to property podcasts. Once again, I hear others talk about it. That. Property investors talk about this idea of an investment grade property. And you know, we don't really have that in, in the share market. There's no one that says this is investment grade. That's not, you can go into bond markets and you can find that. But in your mind, what makes an investment grade property versus one that's not?
1: Yeah, so Stuart Weems talks about investment grade a lot. He's a, he's a gun planner down in Melbourne and mm-hmm. um, he gets property. Um, really, it, it comes down to the, just, just two fundamentals. He's got demand. And you've got supply. So really, if we think about supply first, it's really easy to think about that. Can they build more of it? Um, And is it truly scarce? Is it, you know, and so if you think about a house and land package in the suburbs, can they build more of them? Yes. Can you think about a new high rise? Can they build more of them? Yes. So they're just fundamentally, they're flawed because there's just more supply that can be built. New townhouses, they can build more of them. So you need to get something where there's actually capped supply. Mm-hmm. So if you think about houses in the in a 5k ring of a city, can they build more houses? No. Mm-hmm. Is there going to be less houses in 10 years' time? Yes, because they're going to knock the houses down to build apartments, to build townhouses, to build shopping centers and freeway or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there'll be less houses. There's no land left. So from a supply point of view, it's good. And is that supply highly desirable for on the demand side to? people that want to live in it not to buy it to invest in do they want to live in it and raise a family and do two double income kind of families want it because they're the ones who've got the borrowing capacity and the cash to go and borrow the money or they're willing to put their money into it Mm. and so what you're trying to do is, is is find property that is a really scarce and in suburbs where they're not going to change because the livability what makes the suburb desirable today to live in for families you want that to be the same in 10 years time mm-hmm. so you want to buy in areas that have got lots of heritage overlays parks beautiful streets um because if you come back in 10 years time or 20 years time or 30 years time these will probably stay the same mm-hmm. the cbd is only going to keep growing with the population and so then the that from a life a living point of view should stay the same and so then as a percentage that you know if you come back in 20 30 years time the percentage of the population that could afford that property will be or the number will be much bigger mm-hmm. and they'll just start competing for these assets. The problem is, you, you don't want to buy, you, you know, if you think about Melbourne, all the eastern suburbs around the Bay, it's just too expensive, mm. you know. And so, where you would potentially look in Melbourne is maybe the upper north and the inner west because it's still affordable to kind of first home buyers. Um, and so, if you're going to buy an investment grade, you'd probably go there because the yield wouldn't be too bad compared to, say, the east and the Bayside.
0: How about in Sydney?
1: Uh, similar, you can do it in the inner west. The eastern suburbs is is like one five plus, yep. but in the inner west, in places you know around, you know the Bowmans, the Annandale's, the glee Stanmore, Petersham, Newtown, all these suburbs, you know, you can buy little houses that families would love to live in, you know, in the low ones, which is which is pretty cool.
0: Okay, that's kind of the reality. It's scary though, isn't it? It's uh, for first home buyers. It's uh, to think about a million dollars on a first home.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, you know, I think where you're looking for that double income, both working on two solid incomes that both probably work in the city, um, both earn, you know, reasonable money, mm-hmm. you know. The problem is people are taking million-dollar mortgages out, 45K from the city in, Br- in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they're pushing themselves to the nth degree, um, and, you know, they're borrowed right up to their maximum, they've got a loan at 95% and they bought a housing estate. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is a lot riskier.
0: Yeah, for, for sure. Okay. Uh, we've talked about uh, probably some of the mistakes or pitfalls that people fall into. If you can imagine, say, tomorrow someone walks into your office and they're this typical couple, let's say a 35, couple of kids, mortgage, car loans, etc. You, your advice to them, I guess, would be target properties in this fringe, so this five-kilometer fringe around the city. But are there any sort of... I know this is very broad strokes here, but there's things that you deal with every single day or whenever you meet with a client that you think all right i just wish everyone would know this before they got to me so things like you know pay down debts or anything yeah. like that so you
1: mentioned car loans i'm not really a fan of having car loans you know unless it's a work or it's you're driving it a lot and you know you get a value out of a nice car sort of thing but mm. you know even then i would probably so things like that you know sh- you know obviously you know unsecured kind of short-term credit credit cards not a fan of those mm-hmm. you know that's you know, obvious reasons. Um, You know, I would still do all the, you know, get the clients to talk about all your foundations about having a cash flow system to make sure that you manage money on it. You know, have a system that works, Um, you know, do your super, do your insurance, you know, all those foundation things. Mm. Um, But once you've got all those done, um, you know, only own good top quality properties, you know, like don't own a, you know, two bedroom unit in Toowoomba or something like that, just because you're, bought it when you were 25 and you still got it and it's done nothing in 10 years just get rid of it you know and, yep. um, if you're going to buy a home and you're going to take out a lot of debt make sure it's something you can grow into as a family you know um, so there's lots of you know i guess there's things but you know really good financial advice is actually really simple and it's actually good foundations it's not ultra complex strategies that you know uh, stock picking you know mm. The next kind of growth story mm. i just don't think that's good advice mm.
0: okay let's change gears a bit because I've, I've read some posts that you've had in the past about <laughs> uh different apps or services and technology the way that's changing the financial advice industry and talking yep. about keeping things simple uh some of these apps you know saving budgeting investing etc some of the things that you've I've, I've noticed that you've written in the past one of them you know that robo advice is probably a big thing, but it's probably more of a commodity than mm-hmm. anything else, and, and the, the prices will come down and maybe even free one day to yep. to engage a robo advisor. Um, another one is that um, it may become free or automated at least to get financial health check. Yeah, and um, there's a couple more that you have, but I'll I'll, I'll, sp- I'll spare. I'll let you do the talking. Um, can you explain? Can you explain where you see the financial advice industry going? Because you're you're at the coalface, right?
1: Uh, I think it's fragmented. It's going to split off dramatically because you're going to have the exit of bank planners, which I think is a really good thing. And uh, If you're a bank planner now, like sorry, the jobs are not going to be there, but for the future of Australia, I think it's good that institutions are not providing financial advice. I think it's just too conflicted mm-hmm. and we need to cut that at some point. And so I think that's a good thing. I do think that um, I think there will be a high-end – the half a percent, not even the one percenters, like the half a percent or 0.25 or 0.1% will go to uh, full service, well-structured financial advice groups that have the infrastructure to provide a gamut of services under one roof. But they'll have to be a bit smart and make sure that they don't do the wrong thing because those things will come unstuck as we've kind of seen recently as well. So Mm. those ultra ethical high net worth businesses will do really well because there will be a growing cohort that will seek experts and thought and a value time and value knowledge and will pay for that advice mm. but you'll need a proper infrastructure you can't just start a business tomorrow and try to compete there because there's already established players that will do really well but i then think there's going to be this huge gap and i think that you know uh, a lot of um the time especially unless compliance dramatically goes a whole other flip and compliance becomes really easy uh, and time, like not very time consuming. it will be very hard to deliver advice to everyday Australians unless compliance costs come down dramatically and it becomes much automated and much easier. Um, So if that happens, then yeah, I think everyone, there'll be a role for advisors, but unless that happens, then I think a lot of advisors are gonna struggle. And so, you know, there'll be not really profitable businesses um and then i do think there'll be online players that really take off i don't think robo advice i think everyone got scared about it but really it's just an automated investment solution like an index fund that's you know they're not that complex Mm. Um, and they have been commoditized already there now i think Um, Mm. but those those robos are now attaching advisors on that you can basically have for 30 basis points or 20 basis points and they can you know talk to you about things and
0: so kind of like a subscription Feel like,
1: yeah, I think Vanguard do like personal advisor services, and I think you know, uh, better personal capital do. I think Betterment tried it. I think Stockspot here are going to do it. You know, I think that's that's the future of that kind of robo advice is mm. cheap investment management, which is almost free, yep. um, with an advisor attached via webinar or something like that, a web uh, kind of video sort of thing. Mm. But I don't, I think, I think that's pretty boring. I think the next evolution of advice will be kind of. AI sort of machine learning models that you can basically plug in your financial situation and it'll give you insights and say, look, you're spending this. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about doing this with your money? And it'll be a lot of general advice using data to give you ideas. You know, you've got your super fund there, you're paying 2%, why don't you put that into a low cost fund? You know, you're paying 5% on your mortgage, you could be paying Mm 3.5%. And would you want us to implement that? And then you'd say yes and then they would spit out an automated advice document and help you manage that process through. So I think unless you are providing really value around the the conversations in life, should we buy our first home? Should we move overseas? Should I take that job? Should I start a business? Should we have a family? These questions, if you're not expert in those type of questions, you're just selling products, the computer will do that.
0: Yeah. How far do you think we are away from having a solution that can Kind of be more holistic than fragmented, like you said in the investing piece, for example.
1: Uh, good question. I was way overconfident with this stuff, and I think you know there's always overhype with technology, and then there hits this kind of this dip. I think Gartner do a really good graphic mm. of that. And when new technology comes out, we think it's going to change the world, and then it kind of goes through this dip, and then it comes back. I think we're in this dip where they're trying to figure it all out. So. Uh, asked me two years ago I would have said in two or three years time now I probably still think it's probably another five years away you mm. know till we start to see this stuff
0: it's kind of an exciting thing for consumers I guess and particularly people that haven't had access to advisors in the past whether that be because they simply just don't um, have a trust or whether they don't have the financial they think they don't have the financial capacity to be able to just have a system that might say read your bank statements and then just spit out some recommendations I mean that's Pretty exciting for them. Pretty scary if, like you said, if you're just pushing products on the other side of the table.
1: Yeah, and I think, like you know, you think someone like Finder, for example, right? Mm. You know, if they if you they've got access to all the products there, and so if you just gave them your data and said, "Tell me what I need to do," mm. and they had a, a machine chatbot that talked you through it and said, "Do X, Y, and Z," and it's going to save you Y. Do you want us to do that for you? Press. Yeah your thumb here like it's it's i, I do think it's going to come and so the only way to really stay in that world is to be the you know the trusted advisor that's good at answering those big questions because you can't put in there into that thing should i have a family yeah it's too technical it's too like <laughs> yeah presumably you know you know what i mean there's just so much to mm-hmm.
0: it i think um you know while this is kind of a scary development or th- th- potentially disruptive for some advisors it, it can also like you said if you are the right type of advisor this is probably a really exciting time for you as well and for you specifically you've developed this a, a, a tremendous amount of social capital what uh, what we call social capital in the sense that you've got an online presence people know who you are um, your business I I'm keen to know how it affects your business but let's just take a, an example in on LinkedIn for example you have 21,000 people that follow you that's that's incredible I don't think of any I don't know of any finance professional in the country that has that amount of uh, following mm. uh, and I mean in, I'm interested to know how that level of social capital impacts your business is that a, a genuine funnel for you
1: yeah yep so we you know it definitely is and we get you know, I get people reaching out every day basically hmm. um, but they don't all become clients you know we have a 15 20 minute phone call and you know and i've got a a bit of a niche that we work with and you know it's you know unless they're at certain levels and certain points in their life then we're not really the right fit so yeah it definitely is i think social content um if you're doing it for the following you're doing for that then you're probably going to run out of steam you know you do it because you enjoy it you do it because you it helps you You find it interesting, mm. etc. So when I started producing content, I did it actually from a selfish, well not selfish reason, there was a business hopefully outcome I could get from it. And it was a growing, you know, I thought it was a way of growing the business, but why would I do it every single day? Was well, cause I enjoyed it. Yeah. And so I enjoyed writing posts, I enjoyed. And so, um, yeah, that's, so I think there's a, it's, it's great, I'm getting these things, but I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't enjoy it. Mm. And so that's, that's the fun of it all. Um, you don't know where the opportunity is going to come from. The thing about content is you don't know who's following. So you, you it, unless you're doing a tracking, you're doing an email newsletter and stuff like that, which I'm not, mm. but if you, and you can see who's opening it and things like that. On LinkedIn, I don't know who those 20,000 people are. And I don't even know if they're reading it. And so it's, that's when you get a call and they're like, I've been reading your stuff for three, four years. Mm. Uh, I really love it. And then they start using your lingo and terminology <laughs> and you're like, okay, you have been reading it. Um, and so that's, that's the, f- that's nice. Like, I guess it's, uh, and so you're yeah, helping people and you don't, that's what I love about it is you help people on scale, you know, hopefully make better decisions um, without having to see all those people. Mm. Cause that's the problem with advice. Like what I could help 10 new clients a month, probably mm. we start capping out, you know, pro- to, you know, it's probably a bit more, but you know, it's, it's not, I can't help 100 yep. and so uh, that's kind of the problem with face-to-face advice it's just not scalable
0: Yeah. so this is an interesting thing because I, particularly now with these prominent social networks we have a lot of people in an industry that would like to be in the position that you're in in terms of how big you've got your you're following mm-hmm. but most of them kind of don't really have a plan or a way to to tackle it, and they, they dip their toe in the water and they don't get an ROI from it immediately. You yep. just you just mentioned four or five years. Did you like, did you have a plan, or did you just think let's just I'm just enjoying this, and if people like it, they like it, and that's good enough.
1: So I I remember when I started because you know business been going for six months, and I started reading about content marketing, and so I started writing blogs. and I was at school, and I was never told that I could write very well, right? Mm-hmm. So it was always numbers. I did like standard English, I didn't do advanced English, I was, you know, I was never, English wasn't really my thing, so, but I thought, well, I could write, and I just started writing, um, and I probably look back on those blogs now, they're probably not well written, (laughs) you know what I mean, but I wrote really long form blogs, and they didn't really get much traction, and um, I thought, well, that's it, I'm not going to try that anymore, because I spent four, five, six hours doing this well-researched, piece mm. um i uh, in saying that though a few of them were a bit controversial and i or was a bit of a strategy that i did have a bit a few things i wanted to get out about the industry that were upsetting me and so that was probably a negative kind of phase i, I started the business with a bit of haste and a bit of i can do it better than that and this is you know it's not right what everyone else is doing mm. um i don't really care about any of that anymore i don't really focus my energy there but That was kind of a shift. I went from long form to short form. I just thought, well, I'll just do these short snippets. Mm. And then that was, I've just said, well, if you're going to do it, you've got to stay consistent. I just did it daily. And over time, it just grows, you know, Mm. if you stay consistent and people keep wanting to read I guess.
0: Mm. I'll put a link in the show notes to those short snippets you do, but I think they're great. Some of the graphics are just kind of like drawn on a piece of paper with a text or sometimes. Yeah. It's just, it just makes so much sense. All that encapsulation, all that, Information encapsulated in one little paragraph and an image. Um, okay, so that's like I think that that places you better for someone compared to someone who say doesn't hasn't invested in the social capital. They've really they might have a website, but they don't really put themselves out there. But then again, like you say, it might not be for everyone. For example, those that aren't passionate about it. Mm. Um, you've since started a podcast. Is that right? Mm. Yeah. um What are some of the other things that you would say? maybe a low-hanging fruit for advisors or do would you, would you have any tips for them um so
1: what i like about the content side is that it's free basically mm-hmm. and i haven't got out and go out there and kind of you know talk to accountants or lawyers and say refer to me and things like that the interesting thing is after doing the content they now do because they read it and then they were like well i trust you mm-hmm. and Uh, you've stayed consistent and you've stayed authentic and you haven't changed your tune one minute you're not recommending this and now you're recommending this so after a while people you build that trusted kind of credibility and people refer to you so you know it's one of the ways to to build referral partners is actually become a bit you know create that content Mm. from a low-hanging fruit I think the podcast it's been going for over a year now Um, we got some really good advice early on that if we were going to do it that to do it properly and get really good sound, get really clear on your messaging and what you're trying to achieve and then go out and get it produced, you professionally. know, professionally basically. Um, and that was really good advice and so that's what we tried to do and it's it's kind of working. The good thing about podcast is it's what we're doing now is sound. If you listen to someone's voice, I didn't know this, um, and you do that multiple times and so multiple hours, I think you build a lot of trust with people. For sure and much more than kind of writing, I think. And so when clients come to me off the podcast, like they're even completely different to off LinkedIn or something like that. They're like really thought about things deeply. And, you know, I think from a client point of view, it's it's great, you know, we end up working together really fast and Mm. and things like that. Um, I don't know, I think videos untapped, I haven't really seen anyone do it that well. I do think that there's an even bigger element of trust factor if you're authentic on camera, and you you know, and you produce things that aren't. You know, I don't, know, I don't really like the whole car, the car, the walking and talk. You know, the mm. you know, the off-cuff. I think if it's good content that's produced well, I do think there'll be a huge gap for someone to to do that. Mm. You can see someone like Kenna Campbell on YouTube. She's a prime example. Um, she's got over a hundred thousand. YouTube followers she's a financial advisor um, off video on YouTube mm. and so she's a you know she's got her market you know you know women and finance sort of and so she, you know, that's a huge tap you know a lot of planners wouldn't even know that exists but she's mm. got hot books out of it and everything like that mm. um, you only have and you can produce books as well I mean you have to look at the success of Scott Pape. there, there will be another Scott Pape at mm. some point that you know does just as well um, you know at some point
0: Mm. yeah I think there's tremendous opportunity and you mentioned video we talked off air about this a little bit but this transition away from free to air television I don't I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that that's dying and probably, you know you can put me on record for the next five years that almost everything that you consume will be online and I think no matter what industry you're in the takeaway here is that if you are prepared to invest and build that social capital and you get the right infrastructure in place there's a tremendous opportunity you just you just mentioned a few examples of people mm. that I haven't heard of um, I, I, and I think that's a way to not necessarily future proof yourself or your business but it's definitely it's table stakes if you want to build a, a great business and um, providing advice in any capacity I guess it doesn't matter if you're in this industry in design or whatever industry you're in mm. so I think that's great and I think what your success today is um, testament to that strategy and, and just putting yourself out there and giving it a go um, as we come to the end of the conversation, I think given your focus on property, on, you know, as you said, it's not your sole focus, but your interest in property, it might be remiss of me not to ask how you feel about property in the near term or perhaps in the medium term, this kind of outlook. I don't really like to do these on this show, but mm. um, what I'm also keen to understand is how do you sort the noise from what's actually important to your clients and to yourself? So,
1: I was extremely... Last year was really hard to provide advice. Um,
0: this is in 2018. Yep.
1: Yeah, so basically, you know, all the issues around the election um, and then even this year with the election as well, yep. just because that's the, the direction for the Australia's biggest asset could have taken a big uh, turn to the different direction. And we've seen that since the election. You know, a lot of confidence has come back into the market and things like that. So... Yep. You know that wasn't noise that was actually fundamentally something that would change the psyche to the Australian property investor if negative gearing went yep. so you do have to but you know things that aren't that important or what's happening with interest rates and things like that I don't think small little you know what's going to happen next month or you know there's so much you're right there is so much noise I guess the reality is if you're only buying a few assets really what doesn't matter is to the Australian property market doesn't matter. What's happening to your micro market, to your house in your suburb is really what matters. And if they're not building any more of them, and as long as the Australian population keeps growing and our economy keeps growing over the next, say, 30, 40 years, uh, and it's a scarce asset that suits kind of families, like unless we completely change the way that we live and we move to country and hmm. things like that, um, you'd like to think that's going to be a good, it's going to be a desirable thing for people to live in, in 30, 40 years time. Mm. So you don't really have to worry about it too much um, because you just buy good assets and you hold them for a long time. Mm. Uh, And it sounds pretty simple, but to me, I think that's the best strategy you can go with. You don't have to kind of time markets or try to pick where the next growth hotspot is. those things can potentially work, but you you end up having to put that capital somewhere else. the good asset might have gone up just as much, you know. Mm. And so a lot of that kind of flipping and all that sort of stuff, they can work, but a lot of the time they don't.
0: Mm. I like this simple buy and hold, high quality. It's very much the way I approach my other, in my investing in in the share market. Mm. Um, and I imagine with that, you uh, would be, sometimes you have to pay up for those properties, right?
1: Yeah, so these aren't, you know, you, you don't go and buy, you know, in Brighton or Camberwell, a house there, you know, $3 million or something like that. but you know, you could buy something in Northcote for low, low million dollars, you know, or Brunswick or Yarraville or mm-hmm. Kensington. You know, so these are all like four or five cases in the city, you know, scarce, highly desirable places for young families. And they're not too expensive right now. Mm-hmm. You know, 1st home buyers on double incomes can get there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the upgrader market definitely isn't there yet. But the upgraded market will at some point get there, you know, because they won't be able to buy in the east or the Bayside. And they'll all want to kind of get close to the city because they've got kids and Brunswick, Northcote will be where they all want to move to, you know. And so those suburbs, you know, when at some point will be when all that cash from other suburbs kind of gets invested and, you know, those suburbs gentrify over time and they become more suitable to families and things like that. So, I mean, that's kind of the, the philosophy behind it is that, you know, you buy something also that always suits the family market don't buy a kind of a two bed house that will never suit the family market. Um, because that's the family that, that market's got the biggest emotional pull, and that will go and spend $4 million in a house or $3 million on a house. Even if this doesn't make sense from an investment point of view, they go and spend that money because they have such a desire to live in it from a lifestyle point of view. Mm,
0: that makes sense. Okay. As we come to the end of the conversation, uh, how can our listeners find out more about you and your business and, and follow you?
1: Yeah. Um, you Know, always happy for people to kind of engage and jump on LinkedIn and you know and continue the conversation there. Podcast is um, obviously another thing, is the elephant you know, in the room. Yep, the elephant in the room property podcast. If you want to listen to that, that'd be amazing. Um, yep, that's that's good fun. So we would just uh, let one out every week, and that's uh, always interesting. Uh, and then there'll be other content things that will come out soon. So some things in the works, but yeah.
0: great. Okay, final question from me, mate. Yeah if you could go back and tell a younger you one thing about money finance or investing what would it be
1: um, pursue find your passion and uh, live live your life following your passions and what's gonna make you happy and try to find that um, because there's no point pursuing anything else great advice So live life on your terms and just follow that Uh, And don't stress about the other stuff. It'll come. If you follow your passion, you'll invest, you'll have energy, you'll work on your your personal knowledge, your job opportunities will come, money will
0: come. Don't worry about it. Wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) Chris, thanks for joining (laughs) me on the show, mate. No worries. Good. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle OwenRask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest.